Hey everybody, welcome to the Inspire Podcast. This is Matt. And this is Brad. We are the pastors of Inspire Church in Westfield, Indiana. If you want to stay up to date with everything that's happening around here, be sure to subscribe to our text updates by texting the keyword INSPIRE. That's N-S-P-I-R-E to 317-451-4111. We hope the following message inspires you to take the next step in your faith journey. My goodness, that is fantastic. Gave me the chills, both services. That is, uh, can never go wrong with a Whitney Houston. I know there's only one Whitney Houston, but I think our Aaron does a great job of doing Whitney proud. Anybody who's here for the first time is like, why are we doing Whitney Houston in church? And I think we should just do 80s music every week, but apparently... You can't really do that. But we're doing it right now for a series called 80s Mixtape. And what we're doing is we're taking different song out of the 80s each week. And we're kind of looking at it through uh, a Christian worldview, a Christian lens, and kind of exploring some of the spiritual truths in those songs. And we're going to talk a little bit more about why we chose that song this week. But each week, we're also kind of highlighting some of the best of 80s culture. And uh, last week, we had a lot of fun talking about some of the TV shows. This week, I want to talk about one of the truly amazing things about the 80s, which was the fashion, the fashion of the 80s there. Um, I've had my mom kind of send me some pictures of me from the 80s there every week. And uh, these were a couple of the ones that she dug up this week for me. Anybody who was here last week know that I kind of grew up in a kind of a super Christian household, which is why I'm wearing a t-shirt that says, I'm of the seed of Abraham. So, yes, I had a shirt like that. But I'm rocking some cool uh, Bermuda shorts, and I'm not sure what I've got going on in that other picture there to the right. It was uh, pretty special. Uh, how many of you, like, loved 80s fashion and were rocking it? Anybody have, like, these jam shorts? Remember these there? I mean, they were all kinds of colorful. Uh, now, one of the things that was one of the more defining looks of the 80s was the, uh, the acid wash, stone wash jeans, right? I mean, come on, the denim on denim look there. Now, I asked this in the first service, and I, I was surprised more people didn't do this. Did anybody attempt to do your own bleach or stone wash jeans at home? Like, you know, you could do that, right? I tried doing that because, like, you know, I couldn't afford necessarily some of the cool fashion that I wanted to rock. And I read that you could do that yourself, and I think I just probably ruined like two or three pair of jeans trying different things, spattering the bleach and doing all the different things there. It didn't come out quite as cool as that. But one thing I did have down was this next technique. That was pegging your jeans. Remember that? Now, to peg your jeans, you very tightly roll it. You fold it over, and then you just do a roll or two just like this. And then look at that. That's a good 80s peg look right there. You could just rock some cool 80s denim with that. Now, if you're pegging your jeans, you might be wearing like a Bugle Boy. Remember that brand from the 80s there? That was a, a fun brand, fun look there. Or maybe you weren't in the jeans. Maybe it was the, the parachute pants of the 80s there, right? I mean, you had all kinds of crazy styles going on, the MC Hammer pants. And now I had, I had a pair kind of like the one here. 
with the, uh, with like the zippers, like multiple, multiple zippers all over the place, man. I thought those things looked so freaking cool. I was rocking the 80s look so hard there. Now, we, we did a thing online on Facebook where we were asking, you know, what were some of your favorite fashion trends of the 80s? And uh, somebody mentioned the, the preppy look. Remember this look there from the 80s? It was a very unique look. And uh, you could accomplish it by just taking your, your sweater and kind of like loosely laying it over your shoulder, doing a loose tie there. And uh, you saw that look in a lot of 80s movies. Uh, ladies, how about uh, that, that rockin' business look with the big shoulder pads? Man, any, any of you gals who uh, got dressed up in the 80s had some big shoulder pad action going on there. That was, a, that was an interesting look. Now, if you went to the beach or you were outside in the 80s, you are probably rocking your Wayfarers, and, and you may have had these crokies. Remember those, kind of the original sunglass strap that you'd put on there and you'd look so cool? Um, maybe as the weather cooled down a little bit, you'd be rocking some track suits. The track suits of the 80s. Oh, my goodness. Why did we think that that looked cool? Or the 80s exercise look. Did you, were anybody, was anybody in here for the countdown? You see that, the exercise videos of these? That was just not a good look at all, but uh, we were rocking it. My mom actually sent me this picture of me in a, my 80s tracksuit there, rocking a Stars and Stripe starter 80s tracksuit going on there. And uh, probably under that jacket, I, was, I may have had a fanny pack, um, which was huge back then. And now the, some of the stuff is making a resurgence. Right? You know, the fanny packs, which I never thought was cool to begin with, have become cool again, mysteriously, for some reason. Uh, I think in the 80s, that Bugle Boy one, man, I would have loved that. Now, uh, there was all kinds of wrist bling that we would do. Uh, if you went to school, you may have worn the jelly bracelets, you know, lots and lots and lots of them. Some of you, some of you gals are trying to do all Madonna style, right, with lots and lots of bracelets going on. Or do you remember the slap bracelets, where you slap it on there? And uh, this was my personal favorite, though, this, uh, this Casio calculator watch. I had one of these in school, and I, let me tell you how I used it. Because I thought, I thought, man, we are like living in the future. You've got a calculator on your wrist. How amazing is that? And, and we would play a game on the playground at the school where I grew up with, where we would pretend that this was like a time machine. And so I would enter in the year that we were going to, 2001-8, you know, and, and we would hit enter, and we would pretend that we were being whisked off to another time dimension. So we're running across the playground, ah, you know, doing this thing. So yes, I was even a geek back then. But uh, that, was, that was awesome, the, the Casio calculator watch. Now, if you went to school in the 80s, you would have probably had one of these things uh, somewhere along the way. Maybe the, the Trapper Keeper. You had to have a trapper keeper. Uh, I mean, you had the, the heart one, the, the, one with the green one with the horse. Anybody remember that? Uh, Care Bears, all the different looks that they had. And everything was scented there. You had the scented colored markers. And uh, if, if you went to a school and, and had a good teacher, you probably got one of these scratch and sniff stickers sent home with your homework. Like to this day, I could smell something, and it takes me back to that, that, that smell of the scratch and sniff. Specifically, I remember that, that grape stuff, the, the peanut butter and jelly one right there. I can still pull up that smell in my head. I still remember getting that. Now, there was all kinds of crazy fashion looks from the clothing and all the different things to the 80s. But one of the things that was just truly 
iconic of that era was the hairstyles, specifically the mullets. I mean, we had so many bad mullets in the 80s. Billy Joe or Billy Ray Cyrus, I think, was like responsible for like half of them. He, man, he had some really, really bad looks. And now, ladies, don't you laugh too hard because your hair was not all that impressive either. Some of you had like, were wholly responsible. Some of you could like claim part responsibility for the hole in the ozone layer in the 80s and 90s. You remember that? Remember that was a big deal back then? It's because of all the Aquanet. He sprayed to get it all up and big and had the, the crimper going on there, the big 80s hair, all kinds of stuff. Man, I'll tell you what, that, that, that era was just a ton of fun for so many different reasons. This series is just a blast because I, I just have fun reminiscing about that. And, and last week we talked about, you know, with the idea of doubts, what do we do with our doubts and our questions and our struggles? This week, you know, was that Whitney song, Where Do Broken Hearts Go? And we want to talk about what we do with our dark emotions. What do we do with sadness and grief? Uh, this was an interesting song because Whitney in the 80s there, I mean, she just kept knocking out song after song that went to the top of the chart. She was an incredible artist. And this particular song was written by two gentlemen, Frank Windhorn and Chuck Jackson. And originally when it was presented to her, she was not that big of a fan of the song. She didn't want to do it. And they kind of pressed her and said, no, no, no this is going to be a good song. And of course, it shot to the top of the charts. And Houston remained perplexed by the song and its lyrics. And reportedly, Windhorn said later that he, he actually got a letter from Whitney who sent him a letter essentially asking, where do broken hearts go? I, I have no idea. She kind of felt it was this kind of open-ended, unresolved song. And if you know anything about Whitney's story, you know that she experienced a lot of loss and heartache and some sadness herself. So it would make sense, wouldn't it, that, that she's kind of almost looking for some sort of answer there, that there is no sense of real clear resolve. And if there's anything I know to be true about you, because it's true about me and it's true about every human being, it's that we experience as part of this human experience grief and sadness and loss. It's part of what it means to be human. The longer you've been on this earth, the more familiar you become with grief and with sadness. When I planted this church, I was meeting with area pastors, and there was one pastor in particular who I met with, and he gave me a piece of advice that I found at the time a little bit off-putting, but I've since come to recognize the wisdom in it. He said, Brad, if you're going to be a pastor, if you're going to be in ministry, you have to be prepared to have a low-grade fever of sadness every day of your life. And I, I felt at the time that maybe that was just him being kind of dark and pessimistic, that he'd been kind of in ministry too long. But the longer I've been in ministry, the more I've come to realize the truth of that is because, you know, as a pastor... Matt and I, we have, the, we have the opportunity to share with you in the highs and the lows. We get to go to hospitals and sometimes see babies or 
or visit you at the hospital after surgeries. And then more frequently than not, too, we're also with you in very difficult times. That, that diagnosis, that surgery that you're really upset about, or the loss of someone you love, someone close to you, or you're going through something difficult, and we have to pray with you. And we become very familiar with the pulse of this little microcosm of our community at large is we realize that there are far too many of us who, if we become honest, are dealing with grief and sadness and loss. It's a part of the human experience. You know, if you were to study any anthropological studies and look at ancient cultures, most cultures have some form of a rite of passage, uh, specifically for the young men that kind of marks the transition into adulthood. Uh, I find it interesting that this is done more for the young men, and I think it's probably because us as guys, it takes a little bit longer for us to learn these truths than it does for you ladies, and maybe it comes a little more intuitively for you. But for a lot of these cultures, these ancient, ancient cultures, their rites of passage, whether it's an Aboriginal culture, Native American, or really Celtic or Greek, one of the things that they had in common is that these village elders would teach these young men the way of tears because it had to be taught to them how to wrestle with grief and sadness. It doesn't necessarily come naturally. And it was a mark of maturity to learn to be okay with your tears to listen to your tears and what they have to teach you. Richard Rohr says that all great spirituality is about what we do with our pain. Every religion seeks to try to give an answer to that because pain is a universal part of the human experience and sadness and grief and loss are a universal part of the human experience. In our culture, Unfortunately, in the Western culture specifically, we don't do very good at dealing with sadness and grief and loss. More than most cultures, we have become very good at bottling things up, at shoving things down, at not dealing with or confronting our dark emotions. A recent study found that as many as up to a third of us, and I, I would almost dare say that that number is probably even much larger, that as many as a third of us either judge ourselves for having so-called bad emotions, like sadness or anger or grief, or we actively try to push them aside. And these things don't even just affect us. We do this not only to ourselves, but also to the people that we love, don't we? Like our children. We may inadvertently shame them out of their emotions that we may perceive to be negative. Maybe you grew up in the kind of a house where your, your dad or your mom were not really good at expressing or dealing with emotions, complex emotions. Maybe your dad was kind of one of those tough John Wayne types, you know, that kind of like would say, you know, just suck it up, buttercup. It's okay. Just move on. Stop crying. Pick yourself up. And, and you were taught and you may have caught this idea that any display of emotions especially sadness or tears, was a mark of weakness. You may have experienced shame as a result of those tears or that sadness. And inadvertently, 
we shame our children out of those emotions. Or more often than not today, we tend to try to jump to a conclusion or a solution for them. Well, stop, stop crying. Let's figure this out. Let's move on. Instead of dealing with the grief in the present moment, we want to often move past it. Because if we're honest, grief and sadness is not pleasant. And so if we've not been taught how to deal with it, we want to either suppress it, ignore it, or to try to move past it as quickly as we can, instead of learning to see these emotions as inherently valuable. What we learn from Scripture is that grief and sadness and giving room to those darker emotions was an essential part of being human, an essential part of being a follower of God. David, the psalmist, wrote the book of Psalms, and fully a third of the whole Psalms were Psalms of sadness or grief or lament. In Ecclesiastes chapter 3, Solomon writes, there is a time for everything under the sun. Said there is a time to cry and a time to laugh, a time to grieve and a time to dance. Now, we like the laughing part, we like the joyful part, we like the dancing part. Those are good, fun emotions. But we can become so addicted to the so called good emotions that we don't take the time to sit with our sadness, our grief, and our loss. And this is an essential loss for us as human beings because we cannot be fully human while only experiencing part of the spectrum of emotions that we were born with. To only live in that bright, colorful, rainbow spectrum of happiness, joy, gratitude, happiness, dancing, all those things, while ignoring these darker emotions, these shades of gray, means that we are not fully alive We're not fully living out the humanity that God gifted us with. Because this world, in its brokenness, will break you if you don't learn how to confront your sadness, how to give voice to it the way that David did. There's time for everything. Time to laugh, but there's also time to cry. Fast forward into the Gospels and Jesus comes on the scene. Jesus being fully God in the flesh lived out his humanity in a profound way because he gave voice to the emotions that he felt. One of the more profound and also the shortest verse in the entire Bible that happens to be one of the most profound is John eleven thirty-five. Two words, Jesus wept. Jesus wept. He was not afraid to express emotion or loss. What does God in the flesh look like? He's a God who weeps, God who cries. Jesus, in the Garden of Gethsemane, on the eve of his betrayal before he dies, he's praying and crying out. And we read in Scripture that he cries so fervently that one of the authors writes that he sweat as if it were great drops of blood. He was expressing the depth of his emotions so fervently that the gospel writers had to record it that way. We read in the book of Isaiah that the prophet Isaiah looked forward to what Jesus would be 
and described him this way, that, that he was a man of sorrows, one who was acquainted with grief. This is encouraging to us, or should be, because it means that we don't worship a God who is distant and removed from the human experience. No, he actually incarnated himself and walked this earth to experience the depths of our humanity, including the full spectrum of human emotions. This is a God who weeps, God who cries, a man of sorrows, one who is acquainted with grief. Unfortunately, our Western culture, we, we don't do very good at our grief work. I've done a number of funerals through the years, and I've come to learn in a very unique way, this sounds strange when I, when I verbalize it, but hear me out, I, I actually thank the families oftentimes when I, when I have the opportunity to participate in a funeral because I truly consider it a privilege as a pastor to be allowed to share in that intimate moment with that family. Because a funeral encompasses the whole breadth of the human experience. There's laughter and tears. There's stories from past things that happened. There's, there's reminiscing and there's the whole spectrum of all the emotions together. Sometimes I do funerals for people I know and other times I, I'm brought in and I'm have to, I have to be caught up to speed. And I feel like I'm privileged because I'm being let into a small part of this person's life and I get to share with this family in a, in a sacred moment because grief and sadness is sacred. You can't have joy without loss and sadness. But one thing I find frequently as I, as I conduct funerals, I'll meet with family members beforehand and I'll ask them questions and try to put together a story and Inevitably, uh, a family member, a, a daughter, a son, a spouse uh, is sharing something and then they become emotional and then they begin to break down and they cry. And you know what they frequently say? I I'm, I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. Why is it that we feel the need to apologize for something as natural as human as tears, especially in a moment of death or loss? Nothing could be more natural. Nothing could be more human. And yet, our Western culture kind of says, you know, uh, keep it down. You know, don't, don't express emotion. Apologize for that display of emotion. I, I believe as followers of Christ, one of the ways we can best reflect God to this world is to learn how to live well, to live life to the full. And to do that, we learn how to wrestle with our grief and our sadness and our loss. And how we do that is this. We do so in community because this is an essential truth of what we read in Scripture is that sadness was not meant to be experienced alone. Quite frequently, when we are plumbing the depths of our sadness and our grief, we want to withdraw, to pull in upon ourselves. And I'm talking about sadness and grief that comes from loss, but I'm also talking about the other variety that comes from mental health issues that is so prevalent, anxiety and depression. We know what it feels like to be stuck in our bed and to not feel like we want to get out and face a day and we just pull the covers over our head. 
And we don't want to confront the world out there because it's just too much pain, too much hurt. Okay? But sadness, grief, these dark emotions, we weren't meant to experience them alone. We can find hope and healing in the form of community. There's this Greek word for this process of going through sadness in a way that you come out on the other side with healing. It's this Greek word called catharsis. You may be familiar with it because you've heard of cathartic experiences. It's a type of pain that actually brings healing. That Greek word catharsis means purification or cleansing or renewal. Within the Greek culture, it was understood that, that to experience grief properly and fully meant that you walked through the pain until you could find healing and hope on the other side. And you may bear scars, but you found healing through catharsis, through this purging, this renewal. There is a phenomenon known as a social catharsis. We've experienced it as a culture many times. I think of examples like uh, 9-11 with the, the, uh, the, the World Trade Centers crashing down. In the days and the weeks after, wasn't it incredible that like you saw people who were strangers and you had something in common with them because we had, as a culture, as a country, we had a shared sense of grief. And there was this social catharsis of grieving together this loss. And in so doing, that grief actually brought us closer together because that's what grieving together with someone else will do is that you become bonded to that other person. And to experience healing and wholeness means to open up a part of ourselves and express a grief or a sadness or a loss and to hear a resonance in someone else to say, yes, I understand, I feel it too. Emily Durkheim, a social researcher, said she describes three phases or stages to social catharsis. She said that first, these emotions are shared. And through the sharing, there is a reciprocal simulation of emotions and emotional communion. I love that word. This idea that we are communing together with these shared emotions that we're feeling around this issue. The next is that this then leads to social effects like social integration and strengthening of beliefs. And finally, individuals experience a renewed trust in life, strength, and self-confidence. Grief at its best brings us together. And sadness at its worst that is not resolved causes us to withdraw in upon ourselves to repress those emotions and withdraw from the healing of the community around us. That's not how we were intended to live. Galatians chapter 6, verse 2 offers this piece of advice. It says, bear one another's burdens and in so doing fulfill the law of Christ. These burdens of grief and sadness and these dark emotions were not ours ever to bear alone. Galatians says, bear one another's burdens. Stand next to your brothers and sisters and bear their burdens and make them your own. 
and in so doing, we find hope and healing. Romans chapter 12, Paul offers this piece of encouragement and advice. It says, love others well and don't hide behind a mask. Love authentically. If some have cause to celebrate, join in the celebration. And if others are weeping, join in that as well. You see, this is what a community of faith is supposed to be about. It means that you don't have to grieve alone. You don't have to experience sadness alone. You have others alongside of you. There's something incredibly healing, isn't there? In opening up a part of ourselves to someone else, in unlocking that room and expressing that emotion that we may have kept bottled up for a long time, experiencing or sharing a sadness, a grief, a loss, and finding community and communion together with another human being. This is why some of the deepest bonds that are forged, I think of examples like those who have served in the military alongside of their comrades at arms, who have experienced a shared loss together with a fallen comrade. And what that does to cement the relationships together because they grieved together and they gave voice to a shared loss. And in so de- doing, they, they grew closer together and they were able to heal together. You and I, we can't fully heal alone. Whatever sadness or grief that you are carrying here in this room, whether it is a low-grade fever of sadness that you've been carrying for years or decades, or whether it is a pulsing fever that has infected you, it is not yours to carry alone. And to experience healing and hope, you have to experience that in community. Here's my challenge, my my encouragement for you. Sadness that is repressed will fester. If we bottle it up, if we repress it and suppress it, it will fester and will never fully heal. Sadness that is repressed will fester, but sadness that is expressed can heal. This is why we say here at Inspire, Quite frequently, we, we say that circles are better than rows. And what we mean is this, that right now you're sitting in rows and this is a one-way conversation. I'm talking and you're listening. But where life change and transformation happens, we believe, is in circles. When you can sit with a circle of people in somebody's house in a life group and you have the opportunity to share joys and sorrows, <clears throat> as Galatians said, When somebody's laughing, you laugh with them. When somebody's crying, you cry with them. Some of my most profound emotional experiences that I have with uh, Lisa and I happen within our life group. When we sit there, we have laughed our butts off together. We've also cried together because we're in community And we know that if we're going to experience healing, we're going to do that together. Friends, don't bottle up. Don't try to hide or too quickly move past these so-called dark emotions until you learn to hear what they have to say and until you learn to share them with others. 
Life, unfortunately, will bring sadness and loss. It is a part of the human experience and it is a part of the brokenness of this world. But we don't have to face it alone. Our broken hearts have a place that they can go. And when we ask that question, where do broken hearts go? Our prayer, my prayer for you, is that your broken heart finds a home here in this community of faith with those sitting next to you, in front of you, and behind you. Because guess what? Your sadness and loss may look different than theirs, but you have things in common. And having the emotional courage to open yourself up, to become vulnerable, means that you can experience healing and hope on the other side. Can I pray for you? God, we fully admit together today that, that we're just not very good at dealing with some of these emotions. Maybe we were not taught properly growing up how to give voice to them, or maybe we were shamed out of any displays of sadness or grief or loss. Help us to learn to open ourselves up to others, help us to bear one another's burdens, to step alongside the person who is hurting and to sit with them in the midst of that hurt and to allow that same thing to happen to us, to receive healing in the midst of that. Help us to walk through the valley, even of the shadow, the valley of the shadow of death, and to know that you are with us and that we have a family, a community of believers that are alongside of us and that we can experience healing and hope together. In Jesus' name, amen. Once again, thanks for listening. If you live in the Westfield area, we'd love to see you at one of our weekend gatherings. For directions and more information about our services and family ministries, check out our Facebook page or visit us online at www.inspire.church.